Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Episode 88 of Suncast. I remember spending like a full week digging trenches and laying conduit and pulling wire. I remember getting frustrated and hitting those walls and saying, this is never going to work. And at the end of it, I asked the lead, tell me, how do I be a better engineer designer for you with this kind of a job? And he's like, well, let me show you. And he pulls the plans out in front of me. And he's like, so you're going to be making drawings, right? And I said, yes. And he's like, you see that little one inch green line from the array to this main service panel? And I said, yeah. He's like, that's what you just did for the last week. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and action shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Hey, solar warriors, and welcome back to episode number 88 of Suncast. I'm your host, Nico Johnson, and I'm so glad to have you with me again this week. Every week, Suncast provides tomorrow's clean tech leaders, with insight and ammunition to carry you through your daily battles. Thanks for tuning in, and get ready for your weekly mental tune-up. If you're a regular listener, I am honored to have you back. New listener? Well, equally grateful to have you here with us, too. Be sure that you check out some of the other amazing interviews with solar leaders like Jigger Shaw and Dan Sugar and Ed Fio. Last week, we dropped two episodes on Friday. I apologize if it feels like they're coming in rapid succession for you. And I do hope that you get a chance to catch up. If you missed episode 86 called Join the Tribe, in it I explain how you can partner with me to help make Suncast a sustainable part of our lives together by becoming a member of the Suncast Energy Tribe. If you believe in the value of what Suncast brings to the world, would you please check out that episode? Then you can head over to mysuncast.com and click on Become a Member. And if you did listen or you're already a subscriber to the mailing list, then you're well aware that this Friday, June 1st, is the official launch of the Patreon campaign. Well, today on Suncast, I get to have recent guest Josh Weiner back on the show. In his Tactical Tuesday episode, number 81, we weren't really able to expound on his backstory. So today he's back to dig a whole lot deeper into his work, the founding of his current company, and wax philosophical on a ton of subjects. Josh is the CEO and founder of Seppi Solar, a San Francisco Bay Area engineering services company that has taken a long view on the integration of storage with solar. He was also one of the co-founders of another well-known storage company, Green Charge Networks, which I teased in the Tactical Tuesday episode, and we get into more detail in this one. Stay tuned to learn Seppi Solar's foundation story and what separates them from others, Lessons learned from Akina Solar's IPO and dramatic growth, the not-so-strange connection between music and the solar industry, the incredible impact a neighbor can have on a young mind, and one of the most profound interview questions I've ever heard. My hat is off to editor Chris on this one, as what you're about to hear is part one of two parts, which we've been able to pare down from a three-hour call, no, I'm not kidding, to make it two half-hour episodes. 
This is one of the most interesting interviews I've ever done on Suncast, and I really truly mean that. So be sure to stay tuned later in the week as well for part two of this interview. Thanks again, Solar Warrior, for setting aside this time in your day. Please enjoy this week's episode of Suncast with Josh Weiner of Seppi Solar. There are those occasions in your career where you have a chance to hang out with someone and it feels like you should have met already. You probably have met in another life because there's so many serendipitous connections. And I had that moment just a few minutes ago with the guest that I'm going to introduce to you today, who by training is an astrophysicist, say that five times fast, is steeped in the deep abiding solar culture of NorCal, being a UC Berkeley grad, has worked at name companies like Akina and Next Trekker and many others who cannot be named, as well as Green Charge Networks. Today's guest, Joshua Weiner, is not just an entrepreneur, he's a seasoned engineering operations and innovation executive in the solar industry, who today is going to tell us all about the founding of his current business, Seppi Solar, as well as some, as usual, dabbling in the backstory of how he got there. Josh, stoked to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to do this with you. Yeah, man. Yeah. Like I said before, I can't imagine how or why we have not had a chance to meet yet, but this feels like coming home. As they say, better late than never. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So, you know, among your accolades, obviously, like you helped Akina pre-IPO and did, you know, over 20 megawatts of resi and small commercial. But I mean, I was blown away by a GW beside the gigawatts, right, of accomplishments for Seppi Solar. I knew immediately I got to have this guy on the show because not only does he seem to be a leader in what, you know, the solar plus storage charge, but he clearly has demonstrated track record of success. Where did this come from? You graduated with astrophysics with a minor in music from Berkeley. How in the world did you make your way into solar power? You know, ever since I was a kid, I've always liked asking big, annoying questions. Like, you know, questions like, what's the meaning of life? Why are we here? How do we get here? What are we made of? Where are we going? What does this all mean? And astrophysics was really just an extension of that. I just like asking big questions. And I also have a scientific drive. I don't want to just think or come up or guess at what happens and what we're made of and where we're going and where we come from. I want to test it. I want to study it and analyze it. I actually really think I can find the answer sometimes. And so science and astrophysics in particular, you know, it was just, it was an avenue to do just that. And by the way, it was a little easier than physics too, because everything's in spheres and disks. <laughs> so, um, there was that aspect of it too. But yeah, I mean, it's cool. Like it is actually fun, you know, studying cosmology and the Big Bang and black holes and dark energy and dark matter. And then looking at solar, so I'd studied this great degree, learned a lot, taught me how to think critically in so many ways. And as we say, parameterize our ignorance, you know, pushing the boundaries of our knowledge. Because in astrophysics, every time you answer a question, you just create like 20,000 more. So it was actually well-timed because actually, so I have a dad story. My dad was getting solar installed in the Bay Area and it ended up taking like two years to get a permit for solar in 2003, I think it was, 2002 or 2003. 
So asking these big questions like, where are we going? What's the nature of the universe? And why is it so hard for my dad to get solar? <laughs> What's up with that? You know? yeah. And so I just started asking questions. And that drives me. I mean, that's, that's sort of my, my life story is I, yeah. I'm very curious and I'm driven. I, I love life because I get to learn. And I, I feel like now in my job, I get paid to learn new stuff and how to make the world better and all that. Do you remember who installed the solar for your dad? A company called Alteris. Alteris, um, yeah. Yeah, I think they were based in Fresno. And ironically, it took him another year to, to get the system installed because this was in 2003 or four, maybe. We had the silicon shortage. And I remember I had just started at Akina because I was thinking, I want to solve this problem. I need to learn more about solar because isn't solar a good thing? Why is it so hard to get a permit? And so I took this job at Akina. My boss at the time, Alex O, actually had me take a picture of a warehouse stocked full of panels and send it to my dad and say, you should have bought from Akina. You know? Josh, before we leave your childhood and move into your now fully adult being an entrepreneur and everything, I'd like to know who was your hero as a child? My hero growing up as a child was a neighbor of mine, and he is the reason I got into piano and got into physics and science. I mean, I, I grew up in the country, violently close to our neighbors and community. I grew up outside of Fresno in the foothills. So, I mean, this is like when there's a fire at somebody's house, like everybody's running with buckets of water to help put out that fire. It's like that kind of a community. In hindsight, I learned independence and, you know, taking care of yourself, being part of something greater than yourself, you know, nature and openness, open spaces all around you. Or I grew up around orchards, fruits, almonds. I got really close to a neighbor of mine. I credit him with thinking outside the box, maybe yeah. being a contrarian. He taught me how to think differently. He's the reason I play piano. We got really creative with uh, music and claymation videos with start-stop animation, like old school, like That's with so cool. G.I. Joes and just thinking outside the box, asking big questions, lying under the stars. It's kind of cheesy maybe in some ways, but I'll always think very fondly of those days. It's something I ask myself like, how do I get back to that place? Because so much of us live in cities now, and I, I don't see myself moving from the Bay Area anytime soon. I, I just, I love the culture here and the innovation and the open-minded, but I want to somehow, even if I don't move back to Fresno, like how do I get that feeling of openness and creativity and connection with nature, connection with my community. I look for that in my work and my personal life all the time. You know, I can tell from what I've heard just from Tor and a couple of others about your leadership style that you do have that sense of community. Obviously, if you have any connection with Next Tracker that extends beyond a one-time contract, you fit within their culture of community. I also am from a small town where, as you say, folks next door would give up something of theirs to clothe you because of said uh, yeah. tragedy. Likewise, I never imagined I'll move back to that home, so to speak. But And I, I shunned being from a small town for a long, long time, only to realize that fact as an adult, part of what makes me human and part of what makes me even, I think, approachable is that attachment to the sentimentality of being from a small town where literally we said, hey, the last person out of town on, on Friday night turns the lights off. Yeah. Right. I think that there's a sense of kinship that yes. comes from having that sort of upbringing. And, and frankly, like people ask me, why did you leave the Bay Area? Why did you leave Miami? And it's like, well, I mean, come visit me in Durham and watch my kids play. Like it's a different world. And it's not that it's better. It just reminds me of the fundamentals I want my kids to enjoy. We yeah. can go into that as probably a whole separate podcast. But all that to say, I feel you. Like I hear you on the impact that a neighbor can have 
And so many of our friends who grew up in metropolitan areas probably never even had a close relationship with a neighbor other than like, hey, pipe down over there. I experienced what in hindsight was a significant culture clash moving from Fresno to Berkeley to go to school. In fact, when I first moved to Berkeley, I went down my dorm hallway and like knocked on doors and said hi to every neighbor. And some of them gave me the weirdest looks like, what are you doing bothering me? And then walking down the sidewalk, like just the street, I I felt like this like country mouse and city mouse complex. Like I was literally walking down the sidewalk saying hi and introducing myself to everybody I passed on the sidewalk. And it it, it took me like an hour to go five minutes because I had to stop and say hi. And I got the weirdest looks and I realized, whoa, this is just different than what I I feel in a way very fortunate, and I, I think you do too, like that we almost didn't have that upbringing. I mean, our parents could have, my dad moved from the Bronx. He, he loved the Bronx so much that he wanted to move as far away from it as possible. And he landed in Fresno. It was literally like he wanted to get away from that. Yeah, It's not that New York's a bad place. He just didn't want to raise a family there. The decision he made, it, it never ceases to amaze me. The decisions we make, however small in the moment or passing or brief in the moment, changes lives and oh, yeah. I, generations I'm so fortunate that I had that upbringing and clearly the neighbor made a ripple in your world that led yeah. to being able to choose for yourself something different an undergraduate degree in astrophysics with a minor in music largely influenced by him that piqued your curiosity about how the supernatural exterior world to us to literally exterior to our world impacts our worldly everything, really, but our energy, uh, our life-sustaining forces. We mentioned Akina, and you had a lot of fun at Akina. I think we could probably spend a lot of time talking about just what you learned from Barry and, and Alex and the team at Akina and being a part of one of the early successes, like I think one of the first IPOs in our industry. So I would ask if there was anything about being at Akina that you think is noteworthy as being one of the early IPOs. And in particular, stuff like what you may have learned from what ultimately became the demise of Akina. I'll start with (laughs) the first week I was hired there. So I came in with some thoughts or goals or life promises to myself somehow of making the world a better place. You know, it's like all this stuff, astrophysics, Berkeley, it's all fine and good. But if I don't help people with it, who cares? And, and that's always been a driver in my life, too. I like to help people, and I'm very curious to learn about people's pain and try to help. At Akina, I must have made an impression because <laughs> I reported to Alex, and one of the first things he had within my first week told me to get out of the office and go do an installation. And actually, I think it was Steve Wozniak's ex-wife in no Santa way. Cruz. I, I guess I remember that, yeah. It was really weird. She had alpaca in her backyard with no fence. So they kept wandering into the street and causing issues and designing solar around alpaca. I went on this job site. It was a ground mount. There was like a 200 foot trench run around boulders going back to the main service panel. And I remember spending like a full week digging trenches and laying conduit and pulling wire. I remember getting frustrated and hitting those walls and saying, this is never going to work. And, you know, the, the lead, the installation lead would show up on site and you know, just totally keep us going in the right direction and encouraging us. And I mean, there were moments where we're like, there is no way to get this wire from point A to point B. That's like only two and a half feet apart. And at the end of it, I asked the lead. So tell me, what am I supposed to learn from this? How do I be a better engineer designer for you in this case with this kind of a job? And he's like, well, let me show you. And he pulls the plans out in front of me and he puts them down and he's like, so you're going to be making drawings, right? And I said, yes. 
And he's like, look at this drawing. I looked at it and he said, you see that little green line? It was about an inch long on the paper. And he's like, you see that little one inch green line from the array to this main service panel? And I said, yeah. He's like, that's what you just did for the last week. And that changed me because I was like, wow, one little line tells you absolutely nothing about what's actually going on out there in the real world. And what that taught me in that moment was I need to be an ambassador or translator or the bridge between what happens in concept and what happens in reality. And that I do that communicating through drawings or a communication tool. And I need to communicate myself in drawings. Picture speaks a thousand words kind of thing. That was a lesson that I definitely carried through. And it was like the first lesson I learned at Akina. And I'm so grateful for it. Wow. And it's clear to me how readily that translates into the rest of what might be your resume. What a fantastic takeaway from such an early opportunity. And it speaks to two things for me. It speaks to your openness, your willingness to learn and humility of saying, I I don't presume to know what's happening here. But secondly, it speaks to the fact that you can always say to your team now as a CEO, look, I've been literally in the trenches. I know the meaning of this. Uh, And I think as a leader, that's really important. To this day, I still have a company policy that everybody has to get out on a roof at least once a year. And bonus points if you get out more. And you can do that in so many ways. We go to our clients and say, would you like free labor? We go to grid alternatives and volunteer. I mean, I've started a few companies. My first in the solar industry was a solar installation company. And I was one of the early folks to use S5 lamps. And so in one of my first times actually installing a job was without even the, the little discs that they use now, it was just yep. panels straight down on the little rectangular yep. S5 clamp on a residential roof for a farmer that like, as you're telling me this story about your experience with Alex, it reminds me of that farm and the first 30 kilowatt job that we did for that guy before we did his house. I identify so much with not only are we similar age, but similar experience and background, uh, two totally different trajectories ultimately. But as a CEO, I can see how that experience would help you grow your business. You were working for important companies on important projects. How did Seppi Solar come about. And I want to kind of dig into a bit of the culture of CEPI and how you're growing that business as well. And to answer that, I'll, I'll need to just say one more thing about Akina, which is what directly translates into CEPI Solar. And this I credit absolutely with Barry, is that the next thing I quickly realized is I need to bridge this gap between concept and reality or theory and practice or whatever you want to call it. Then also the big important thing, the things that were holding up solar You know, I thought, you know, being the naive engineer, oh, there's a problem with solar panels or inverters or conductors or whatever else. Like we need to make these systems more efficient and lower cost. Couldn't be further from the truth. Mm -hmm. It was these permitting offices who were rejecting permits in 2000. It was it was in the early days of the California, what became known as the California Solar Rights Act all these governmental codes, public resources codes, civil codes that I ended up learning and really getting into had nothing to do with engineering. It had to do with requirements. At this particular permitting office, I think it was in Alamo or Danville, Walnut Creek, somewhere around there. And they were actually rejecting permits because they were claiming that it would sunlight would reflect off panels into people's kitchens and give children early age cataracts. Like, I'm not joking. And Barry gave me the freedom to fight that fight. And what he taught me, this is a struggle, not, you know, this is a crusade we're on. This is a struggle. It's a challenge. 
this is a call to action. We are the solution to the problem. Even I did an internship with the Environmental Protection Agency. I felt like I kept saying no, no, no to everybody. Pollute less, uh, conserve more, and bad, bad, bad. Whereas with solar, instead of trying to restrict the negative, we're promoting the positive. We're on the same team. We're solving the same problem, but in different ways. And Barry totally was the human manifestation of that. He even said at one point, well, don't worry about it. A Lincoln's better than a cataract's anyway. He just really brought like a, a culture around fighting the good fight, so to speak. So at Seppi Solar, I set out to not just engineer and design, to really own the requirements. To me, it became clear. Design and engineering is very important, and they come first in a lot of ways, and I'll, I'll talk about that. But I actually think of us more like a requirements aggregator. A good engineer, they should understand the design engineering requirements, product compatibility issues, site constraints, customer requirements, utility requirements, permitting requirements, code requirements, because code and permitting don't always line up. And then if there's a third-party financier, you know, they have requirements and ITC and things like that. And all these requirements evolve and change independently of one another all the time. And if you miss any one of those requirements... A lot of us have had that experience of one placard going missing and on the day of inspection, we're rushing out to fabricate a placard or our project gets delayed two weeks and costs us another 500 bucks or whatever. So to me, a good engineer doesn't engineer. A good engineer or a designer in the solar industry really needs to, whether it's one kilowatt or one megawatt, all these projects have to have all the requirements lining up, sort of a death by a thousand paper cuts sort of scenario. But if you get it right, oh, it feels so good when you get that project just on target in alignment with all those requirements. We talked about this a little bit before we started, but I have one overarching question around CEPI Solar. Why third-party engineering? Aren't there enough already? You got Black & Veatch, you got OSI, you got all these major firms that provide this role, as well as like in the Bay Area, ad infinitum of guys who've left SunPower and SolarCity and started their own engineering firm. Why go down this path and and what makes your approach different? We combine technical consulting and engineering into one skill set, into one workforce. So what I mean by that, in fact, we have an employee who double majored in philosophy and engineering. And I was like, how does that work? And they had the perfect answer. She said, philosophy taught me how to ask the right question. Engineering taught me how to find the right answer. There's a lot of engineering companies who like to solve problems. And problems are good to solve, but what are the right problems to solve? What should we be investing our time and energies and brains into? Likewise, there's a lot of people asking questions, but they can't find the right solution. And so from my perspective, technical consulting and engineering have to go hand in hand. And I didn't see that in the market, and I saw a need for it. And what I mean is like consultants inform engineers on what the best in class, state of the art, best programs and companies and ways to work. So that makes engineers better because now we're engineering for the right problems. Then engineers inform consultants by telling them what actually works or doesn't work on the ground floor. What are the right solutions? And that makes better consultants because nothing bugs me more than a consultant who's not based or grounded in reality. And nothing bugs me more than an engineer who just likes to solve anybody's random problems, but isn't actually working on something great. I don't want to work on things that are good or average or mediocre. I mean, I want us to solve big, great, important problems. And I think you need both those disciplines, great brains and great muscle and strength all in one company that creates a perfect feedback loop. I get it. So what I really want to understand is why start your own company? You could be hired by anybody, including Alex. You go to DNV, you go to Black & Veatch, like all these guys would love to have you on their team. 
why start your own company? Can you tell me about a time where you were like, okay, I've found a winning formula and I don't think anybody else is doing it and they're not going to give me the freedom. Help me understand this. I got laid off at Akina because the downturn in the market, 2008, I think it was early 2009 when I actually left Akina. Barry and I are still good friends to this day. Nothing personal. It's just, you know, business decision. The first thing I started doing was, of course, replastering the Bay Area and everywhere I could with my resume and looking for jobs. And I did interview at a lot of places and they all had the same needs. And that was my market research, effectively, was going in for interviews. And it lasted about three or four months. I got lots of job offers. Felt limiting to hitch my ride onto one sales pipeline or one company. It felt like I could help all of you. You all need the same help. Why make these resources exclusive? Why limit their availability or their access? We have such... Right incredible access to information these days. And this is, by the way, a common story. I mean, these other companies like NRG and Next Tracker and Green Charge, I'm in the background most of the time. I'm the guy who, yeah, I need to sort of come out of my closet and I want to make this available to everybody. It just so happens, you know, for a lot of business reasons, folks want to make this exclusive or they want to bring it in-house or they want to own it. And so I look for ways for my clients to own some part of it while still allowing the rest of the industry to thrive. That's one of the things actually, not to detour too much, but one of the things I love about Next Tracker is they don't white label anything. They're actually okay saying this is an ecosystem, it's a partnership, we're working together. That's reason number 574 why I like working there and helping them because yeah. I really do believe they have a good, honest approach that is good for everybody. As a CEO, how do you think about growing the right team? How'd you go from how many, you have 15 now, one to 15, what sort of people do you look for? Solutions-focused, smart, creative, clever. One of my interview questions is, what kind of beer do you like, you know, or what sports do you play? I try not to actually talk too much about solar because we're working so hard and we work long hours. And if you can't have a beer with your neighbor at the end of a hard day's worth of work, why the heck are we working together? You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, to me, it's more important to work together as a team than to be the smartest person in the group or to be the brightest crayon in the box. Everybody has a story. Everybody has a strength. And the purpose of a team is to leverage the strengths and cover the weaknesses or build on the weaknesses to make your employees and your company stronger together. Josh, that is incredibly insightful, not just about like who you are, but the type of company you're growing. And it also gives me something I didn't look for. I was thinking the entire time, half listening, half thinking, what would my answer be to what kind of beer do I like? And... (laughs) And also how that is the most such, important question in life. It is really. such a genius question for an interview. I think Strata should ask this question 100% of the time because most people come to North Carolina, perhaps not realizing that it's actually a really huge microbrew culture. Like there's a huge brewing culture in North Carolina. So what can you learn by asking someone on an interview? Hey, if we went out to lunch right now, what beer would you order? You learn whether they researched and know that North Carolina has interesting beer culture. You learn whether <laughs> they play it safe by ordering a lager versus a porter at lunch, you order, I mean, you learn so much about their personality. Right? Yeah. Yeah. If they say, oh, I'd probably get a Goza. You're like, oh gosh. I mean, are they just a trend follower? (laughs) Are they the kind of person who like will give up on something they're working on because now everybody's doing it? (laughs) (laughs) See, these are, these are the important, you know, these are the important questions right here. (laughs) But they get back to the fabric of how do you grow a team? 
Like what yeah. are the types of people that you look for? And I just had an interview with Chris Terzo, who's a recruiter in the Bay Area. You may know Chris. He's a phenomenal recruiter. And he helped Nigel build their team at Jinko. And one of the fundamental things they do is think about what is our cultural fit and how does someone who would potentially come on add to that? How do they fit within that fabric? And what skill sets are we lacking that we need to backfill? And also, like, what emotional quotient are we missing that we need to hire for? Yeah, I mean, actually, okay, so um, I, <laughs> I am a nerd in all things, including beer. And I've read in the ancient, like, Sumerian days, you know, where beer first sort of came about and whatnot, like, when kings of opposing tribes or groups went into battle, you know, usually there was a winner and a loser and you either kill the loser or you integrate with the loser. Mm -hmm. And if they chose to integrate together and bring the two tribes together, the two kings would have beer together. And this is where we think the cheers and the clinking of the glasses together comes from because sometimes the loser would try to poison the winner or vice versa wow. by poisoning their beer. So when you clink glasses, you're actually supposed to clink them hard enough that the liquid actually pours in to, to the, the other, other glass. glass. And that is, in my mind, the beginning of a team, right? And it's a team built with beer. <laughs> it's like you can draw a more direct connection than, yeah, beer building is team building or vice versa. It's Man, I love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll have to go get a beer at Intersolar now. Absolutely, <laughs> without a doubt. We're going to move into a segment I call Hot or Hype. It is a brief segment. I'll mention a specific marketer topic and you'll spend 30, 60 seconds on whether you think it's hot or hype and perhaps a little bit about why. Okay? Sounds good. All right, so we'll start with the first one. Microgrids are a core part of the future of our electrical grid. Definitely hot. The natural progression is first comes solar. Solar makes energy cheap. Then comes batteries. Batteries make it all the time. And what do customers want? Cheap energy all the time. And you can't look at solar plus storage without thinking of microgrids because then once you are generating your own energy with a solar system and you're managing your own energy with a battery and you're consuming your own energy all in the same place, it starts to put into question what is the role of the utility grid in my life now, hence mm. the microgrid question. So absolutely hot, not hype. All right, moving to the next one, the nexus of renewables and electrification of the automobile industry, hot or hype? Hot to this day. I mean, one of the things that drew me into co-founding Green Charge Networks was it began kind of looking at these parking garages in downtown New York City and saying, you know, we're talking about moving the entire gasoline infrastructure onto the utility grid. And Con Ed, this utility grid in New York City, the oldest grid in the world, by the way, can barely stand on its own two feet as is right now. So how the heck are we going to do that? How about turning parking garages into power plants because someday it's not going to be a parking lot. It's going to be a battery storage on wheels place. And you're going to have all these batteries, electric cars just sitting there, not doing anything. Let's do something with it. So, I mean, absolutely. Electric vehicles are definitely part of the whole energy solution. Hot or hype blockchain as it relates to energy? Um, it's not hot right now, and it's probably not hyped enough yet, mm. but it is going to be important. And I'll explain more a little later because sure. uh, it, it, it fits into what I see as the future of our energy industry. So I would say it's not hot and it needs more hype. Very good. Solar plus storage, hot or hype? Definitely hot right <laughs> now. <laughs> Solar makes energy cheap. Batteries make it all the time. What do customers cool. want? Cheap energy all the time, for sure. I love it. It sounds like that's part of your byline there, part of the PR pack. 
I spend every day like getting into the weeds and my eyes roll back in my head because yeah. batteries are such an engineer's product. But a solar system, you can understand like, oh, sunlight comes in, money comes out. Okay, I'll buy it or I'll, yeah. it makes sense to me. I can see it. Batteries are like, yeah, you take this box and you put it next to the grid and it somehow makes things better. You need to be almost an engineer or financial engineer to explain why, how and what that battery is doing. So yeah, just trying to figure out a way, a simpler way to say it. Like, I love that phrase because it's true and it's just so simple and it doesn't need to be so complicated, but it definitely gets complicated. I like it. I think it's really elegant as well. All right. Last one, hot or hype, commercial industrial. The CNI segment is the new hot market for solar. Hot. Yeah, definitely hot. I see that in Seppi Solar's own business. Hmm. Our commercial department has grown considerably in the last 12 months. It's always grown organically, but I'm definitely noticing just personally with my work at Seppi Solar, the acceleration of the CNI space. And I think storage is a part of that story. Financing is a part of that story. But yeah, it's uh, definitely hot. Hey, Tribe, thanks for making it all the way through to the end of the episode. You are a true fan. If you liked part one of this interview, you'll want to come back for part two on Thursday. So here's a sneak peek at what's in store. There's so much magic that happens every time you help a customer. You're saving them money, making them more independent. You're creating jobs. You're making a cleaner, greener environment for everybody. The country is getting more independent at the same time. Utilities are, whether they admit it or not, are benefiting. It's really magical. While I still have your attention, I'd like to say thank you again. The fact that you're still listening means you really enjoy the work we're bringing to life. If that's true, would you please consider becoming a member of the Suncast Energy Tribe? A special shout out to Energy Tribe members Luis Morales and Matthew Ellis, who have been constant supporters and are true solar warriors. You can join them at mysuncast.com forward slash member. And I look forward to formally welcoming you into the tribe as well, my friend. And thanks again for showing up. It's half the battle.